0: This episode of Shaun of the South is brought to you by Case Knives, a tradition of my family dating back to my granddaddy who once said the best cure for idle hands was to build something. So keep your hands sharp with a Case Knife. And by Folklore Brewing and Meadery, quite literally the best brew in Alabama. Visit folklorebrewingandmeadery.com. Well, you are listening to Sean of the South, and I'm your host tonight, Sean Dietrich. Got a great show lined up, to here. A great show coming to you live through the podcast airwaves and radio waves all over this fine nation. This good looking group of cowboys you see behind me here, fixed to play music for you, are the Poe Ramblin' Boys, everybody. The Poe Ramblin' Boys.
1: And look at the faces that left for the sweet by and by But when I crossed them backwoods where that old shack stood I woke up with tears in my eyes I don't want nobody weeping, weeping though I'm sleeping, or waking up with tears in their eyes. I walk through the places and look at the faces, and left for the sweet by and by. But when I them backwards where that old shack stood, I woke up with tears in my eyes. That long did my childhood I woke up with tears in my eyes I walked through the places And looked at the faces And left for the sweet by and by But when I crossed the backwoods Where that old shack stood I woke up with tears in my eyes But when I crossed the backwoods where that old shack stood, I woke up with
0: tears in my eyes. Well, this portion of our program is brought to you by visit northalabama.org, the Mountain Lakes Tourist Association. Visit the 16 North Alabama counties and make this state what it is. Let's talk about fishing for a second. The Alabama Bass Fishing Trail features 13 of Alabama's premier bass fishing lakes that stretch from the mountains of North Alabama heading south to the Mobile Delta. You might lie awake at night sometimes and wonder if you're a fisherman or not. Well, here's a litmus test for you developed by the scientists at the University of Alabama. It's very, very very easy. You can do it in the privacy of your own home. All you got to do is look in your refrigerator, and if you see tartar sauce or cans of beer, congratulations. You're a fisherman. If you're not, don't worry, because you're about to be one. Alabama is a year-round destination for anglers from across the country who tell their wives they're going fishing, and then they haul very big, heavy coolers into their boats, but often forget their fishing rods at home. North Alabama is home to hundreds of regional and national tournaments across this 52,400 square mile state. So visit northalabama.org to find out more about it or hashtag (laughs) VisitNorthAL. Now let's have another tune here from the Poe Ramblin' Boys, everybody, the Poe Ramblin' Boys.
2: This highway is my home. Missing her is never slowed me down. I get tired of the city, catch your ride to another town. I know should should be back in East Tennessee. I wonder it just how long, long. she'll, she'll be, long. be waiting there for me. She rides to another town. I know I should be back in East Tennessee. I wonder just how long she'll She'll be waiting there for me. me.
0: now for me. Now for the portion of the programme where we read you a little bit of our mail. Sent in to us from listeners all over this fine nation who had nothing better to do than to tell us why they hate our show. <laughs> this is the part of our program where I can look out into the audience and see the eyes of those listening glaze over as they drift deeply into REM sleep. And you can usually tell that these people are hoping and praying that I won't take too long on this portion of the program And they're also praying silently to the Lord above that nobody out there listening to this podcast is operating heavy machinery. (laughs) At least I am. Well, this message I'm about to read for you is an anonymous letter that came to me uh, this week when I announced that my wife and I were moving to Alabama. And the email reads, Sean, I know you're moving to Alabama. And believe me, I'm not trying to talk you out of it. But last month, my family and I visited Florida for a seminar, and we had to drive through Alabama. And we saw this billboard on the side of the road with a red devil on it. And the billboard said, go to church, or the devil's going to burn your butt, or something similar to that. (laughs) Sean, I was so disgusted. I was thinking, if this is how dogmatic Alabamans are, I don't want any part of it. Again, I'm not looking to start a fight, but personally, Sean, I'm sticking with Ohio. Live and let live, I say. Okay, for starters, to the letter to the author of this letter. Uh, first off, you're talking about the billboard on I-65 near Prattville, Alabama. And this sign actually says, go to church or the devil will get you. Which is very different than than what you said it said. As far as I know, the sign has never included the word but. And this is because the sign was erected by fundamentalists. And fundamentalists do not use the word but. Take me. I was raised in a strict fundamentalist household by fervent people who denied the existence of but. (laughs) In fact... I did not use this particular four-letter word until I was 29 years old, and even then I technically wasn't sure what it meant. <laughs> a few other things I was not allowed to do because I was a church-going child, in case you're interested, was dance, or say gosh, or golly, or "jeeves." I was not allowed to watch Charlie's Angels, or Fantasy Island, or any TV show containing an actual female, including segments of the Lawrence Walk Show. So anyway, the sign you're talking about, sir, is not just a run-of-the-make billboard. And that's where where your message went terribly off the tracks. You see, that sign is considered a historic landmark in Alabama, right on par with the U.S. Space and Rocket Center and the Civil Rights Museum and the childhood home of A.J. McCarran. (laughs) The devil's sign has a long history that starts way, way yonder back in time before either you or I were born. See, it was originally erected in the 1980s by a guy named W.S. Billy Newell. And people say Newell was an eccentric character who kept deer and buffalo in his front yard right in the middle of downtown Montgomery, Alabama. That's right. Right in the downtown of Montgomery, Alabama, in the capital city of Alabama, a metropolis with roughly 200,000 residents, home of Alabama's esteemed legislative body and Rosa Parks, and the famous place where all the decisions were made in the Alabama State, there were live buffalo roaming in the Newell front yard, leaving fragrant buffalo surprises in the grass. <laughs> so that tells you what kind of fun guy Billy Newell was who erected that sign. Now, the red devil figure on Newell's sign, however, is sort of an inside joke to Montgomery folks, inasmuch as the devil predates the sign by a long, long time. Back in the early 20s, a Montgomery man named Moe Stewart opened a chain of tank car gas stations. These were old school gas stations with the big tall pump and the globe on top. Now He used the long-tailed red devil on his gas pumps as sort of a mascot. The devil icon became really, really famous in, in that part of Montgomery County, sort of like, I mean, the today's equivalent and it would be like the Pillsbury Doughboy or the Michelin Man. Except, of course, the Pillsbury Doughboy can't drag you off to hell. <laughs> so when they tore down the old gas filling station, Billy, a buffalo man, got a hold of the old tin devil, and he came up with a catchy fundamentalist slogan, and then he used the devil on the billboard, and the rest was history. And that billboard was a huge hit sitting there beside I-65 as people careened by on their way to the beach or on their way to Birmingham. And it has been in that same spot for a quarter of a century until a storm knocked it down in 2016, whereupon there was no sign for a few years. And I want you to guess what happened after that sign went down. What happened after that side of I-65 remained barren and totally unadorned by the sign depicting satan well i'll tell you what happened people freaked out they wanted the sign back and they wanted it back now and this isn't just alabamas i'm talking about either i'm talking about people all over the southeast who went ape because the truth is we all love that sign you see that sign represented childhood And not just our fundamentalist childhoods, I'm talking about the unchurched kids who grew up getting tattoos and watching Three's Company. (laughs) Still, I feel that I should point out that Alabama doesn't have a corner market on dogmatic religious billboards, and this is true. All you have to do is travel outside the borders of this fine cotton state to see that there are people just like The residents of Alabama, and just like the redneck residents of where you live in every state. I have been to Washington State, Oregon, California, New York, Pennsylvania, and I promise you this I have seen at the filling station rednecks in muddy trucks with gun racks on the back. Recently, for example, my wife and I traveled to Missouri. I saw a Baptist billboard on the side of the road, which I will never forget. And the Baptist board said, this is a direct quote, who in hell doesn't want you to be baptized? <laughs> I got my picture beside that billboard. <laughs> there was a billboard I once saw outside of Louisville, Kentucky, where I did something for a book event. And there was a sign, a huge sign over a church that said, where are you going and why are you in that handbasket? And then there was a the sign I saw last summer in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, which read, Are you going to hell? And below the billboard, there was a the sign that said, Ask about our hand-dipped ice cream. <laughs> and then there was my personal favorite, a church sign I once saw in Jackson, Tennessee. It said, Do you know what hell is? Well, come hear our preacher. And there was the church sign, my friend an Episcopal priest erected in front of his church doors one Sunday. And it said, "Lent is coming, so get your ash in church." And <laughs> that one will definitely send you to hell. <laughs> Even so, to the author of the letter who was sent that was sent to me no religious story about billboards would be complete without the story sent in to me by a reader named Randolph Miller from Mount Pleasant Michigan way way up yonder in the northern part of the United States. Randolph says there was a billboard on his childhood school bus route that read you can't hold hands with Jesus when you're in hell. (laughs) Randolph said this sign used to terrify us kids. We would get chills up and down our spine thinking about the religious implications of that sign. Well one year shortly before the Michigan Ohio State game a huge rivalry in that, in that part of the world some derelict kid with a red can of spray paint altered the sign to read something else. And the next morning as the children were passing that sign on their school bus they read the sign aloud and they laughed until their gums bled. The sign said this. You can't hold hands with Jesus when you're in Ohio. <laughs> and that's letters from our listeners. Letters from our listeners. <laughs> now let's have another tune here from the Poe Ramblin' boys, everybody. The Poe Ramblin' Boys. several days ago I was uh, visiting a little school, uh, middle school. going to visit Miss Welch's eighth grade English class to deliver a presentation on the English language and to tell everybody how to talk real good. <laughs> Why Miss Welch asked me still remains a matter of great speculation, especially in my mind. Nevertheless, I found myself jogging across this middle school parking lot carrying a cardboard box that was filled with 31 bottles of Coca-Cola and 31 sleeves of Planters salt peanuts. And I was trying to run very gently because I was running late for my presentation and the bottles in the crate were going clangity, 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 clang and I was hoping that they didn't bash against one another and spill their glorious dark liquid all over my khaki pants. <laughs> it's funny, Coca-Cola was marketed originally in the 1800s as a temperance drink to discourage alcoholism. It was, it was literally promoted by the fundamentalists and evangelists of the, of the era, meaning that Coca-Cola was America's evangelical drink. This I find to be just, just wonderful. Inasmuch as the original ingredients for Coca Cola, which was meant to discourage imbibery and debauchery and bad morals, were one part water, one part sugar, and 19 parts cocaine. (laughs) That is correct. Evangelicals sought to discourage alcoholism by adding cocaine to a drink. <laughs> well, this is the tradition of people I come from, and I find it to be absolutely wonderful. But somewhere along the line, the tradition and the recipe changed, and this, this was replaced with, or the sugar was replaced with corn syrup, which is really a very, very different and subpar product. And that's just the truth. And so Coca-Cola was never really the same again. Obviously, they took out the cocaine, and now sinners drink it too. <laughs> when they replaced the sugar with corn syrup, something changed. And Coca-Cola was a very, very different drink. But in Mexico, they refused to drink something made out of corn syrup because it just isn't the same, and they, they just... they protested with their wallets. And so, the Mexican version of Coca-Cola is made still with cane sugar, and I was carrying Mexican grade Coca-Cola in my box. When I got to the front double doors, I hit the little intercom buzzer, and I looked into the camera. And the little voice over the speaker said, State your business, please. And I said, "Uh, I'm here to deliver a speech for Miss Welch's eighth grade English class. I thought to myself how different times have become. You have to get through security to get into a school. Back when I was a kid, this was not the way. If anybody wanted to come into our school, they just opened the door and walked right on through. When I was a kid, a man could have walked through our cafeteria carrying a shoe bomb and we would have just waved at him. Then we would have stared downward at our imitation meatloaf covered in yellow gravy that resembled either snot or commercial adhesive. <laughs> Today, you have to go through double doors. You have to speak into cameras, talk to intercoms, be frisked by an armed guard. And as I got through the first set of double doors, uh, there was a man waiting for me with a badge and a uniform. And he looked into my box and he said, what do you have there? I said, well, this is Coca Cola and peanuts. And he said, my gosh. And the lines on his face, the corners of his eyes turned into little road maps as he smiled and his cheeks got real bulbous. He said, I haven't had Coca Cola and peanuts in a 100 years. I said, does this mean you're not going to frisk me? (laughs) He said, turn around, big guy. Finally, I was buzzed into the principal's office. And when I got to the principal's office, I had to sign in, give my social security number, be inspected, refrisked, and donate blood. (laughs) And then and only then was I allowed to visit the children. And so I waltzed through the hallways carrying my heavy crate of cocoa and peanuts as they clangety clanged in the box and people just watched me walk by with this, these big eyes. What is he carrying in that box? Well, when I got into Miss Welch's class, she introduced me. She told the kids who I was, and they clapped for me, and it was so kind. It was so kind. Because these kids were kind enough and a little bit naive enough to believe that I was actually somebody a little bit well-known. And this is, this is humbling. And also very, very flattering. Until you realize that they would clap in much the same manner for a man wearing a clown suit. <laughs> and as their applause wafted into my ears, you know what I was thinking? I was thinking backward in time. About a million years into the past when I was this little boy with this little chubby white tummy. And this mess of red hair atop his head and those two ears that looked like a taxicab driving down the road with both doors open. (laughs) And then unnaturally long legs that were so long that my mother said that I looked like a man riding a chicken across the backyard. (laughs) My legs were were unnaturally skinny so that they looked triple-jointed and bent in three places. My mama says when I was born that I was removed from the womb and that I looked like a extended albino frog (laughs) the doctor gripped me by my ankles and held me much the same way that a man would hold a dying chicken in his left hand he held me outward in his right hand he held flatly and he brought it against my bootiest maximus with a loud slap and i began to scream and wail and complain and that really set the tone for my life i've been complaining ever since And I thought backward, way backward. Do you remember how things seemed so big when you were a child? Everything. I can remember the baseball diamond. It seemed enormous. It seemed like you had to run six miles just to get to first base. Not long ago, I visited the baseball diamond that I used to play baseball on. And it's sad because they built a TJ Maxx and a Red Lobster not far from it. But the diamond was still there and my trot to first base took 1.5 seconds. Amazing. I can remember the classrooms that I grew up in. They seemed like little sanctuaries, like, like walking into Notre Dame. Beautiful, big classrooms. There was always an upright piano in the corner where our teacher would play songs that we were forced to sing at gunpoint, songs that Once they get into your head, you cannot forget them. You cannot undo them. You cannot remove them from your skull unless you undergo electroshock therapy. (laughs) Especially, I think about the, the old Finland station way out in the corner of the woods on a rural highway in the middle of nowhere where my daddy used to take me. That place used to seem enormous to me. Enormous built out of cinder blocks and brick with a little tin roof that was rusted and those two gas pumps out front where Mr. Peever and his boys would come out and they'd offer to scrub your windshield and check the air in your tires, ask you when the last time you had your old change was. And you'd step out and you'd walk into that little store and you'd buy candy that you could only get at a place like Peever's, And the candy I'm talking about is candy that many of you here probably remember, but that many of the younger generation, well, if they were to be caught with it, they would be lined up against a brick wall and shot. (laughs) I am, of course, talking about candy cigarettes. (laughs) Candy cigarettes. These were a big deal in my fundamentalist childhood. They were nothing but little white sticks of sugar. They they looked like Q-tips. But you put them in your mouth, and your mama would ground you until you turn 68. <laughs> Which is why we saved all our money to buy them. They had fake cigarette brand names, but they looked almost like pale males or Marlboros or camels or Lucky Strikes. And we put these suckers in our mouth, and we'd walk around, and we'd talk the talk like Humphrey Bogart, like we were somebody. And boy, if you ever got caught with those things... Your mother would make you sorry. Ooh, I love them candy cigarettes. I'm almost ashamed to say it because today if you were caught with a candy cigarette they'd fry your butt on the 6 o'clock news. (laughs) We also had something called Big League Chew which I imagine they sell today but probably under a different name and it it was in a little package that was meant to resemble Red Man Chew or Levi Garrett and you'd you'd put your three fingers like this into the small package and you'd withdraw the chew and you'd put it in your mouth and even though bubble gum doesn't require you to spit, you would spit every two seconds and you'd do it in front of your parents just to see if they were watching. Good memories. All that candy that represents items that will kill you. And I thought to Peavers, that little store, I can remember one day my daddy drove me into town in his car, a Ford, a little brown Ford Maverick that he, that he got from my mother. He was greasy and dirty. He'd spent the entire day working underneath that Ford Maverick. So his fingernails had little half moons of grease on them, and his face was smeared with black smudges, and his hair was a little bit of mess and matted from laying underneath. And there was a puddle of black motor oil on the back of his shirt laid underneath that car my daddy was the kind of guy who spent every day of his life working he was from a generation of men who worked harder on his off day than he worked on his own day there were men who believed in purification by sweat he mowed his lawn twice just to make sure it looked good he painted his house with a Campbell's soup can and a brush, not because it was more efficient that way, carrying such a small amount of paint with you, but because it was more torturous and therefore, therefore it must be better for his eternal soul. For mankind was meant to suffer, and this is what my people believe. And we walked into Peebler's as old man Peebler's boys were filling up the car, scrubbing the windshield. A little bell above the door dinged. I can remember overhead, from a transistor radio somewhere in a windowsill or behind a counter, it was a little bit scratchy from static, from bad reception in the rural parts. It was broadcasting the poetry of Willie Hugh Nelson as he was singing about angels flying too close to the ground. If you would not have fallen, then I would not have found you. Angel flying too close to the ground. I patched up your broken wings and stuck around for a while. Trying to keep your spirits up and your fever down. (laughs) Oh, what happened to that kind of music? And my daddy said, go pick out something for yourself. And so I knew while I was walking the candy aisles that I was not going to get away with getting candy cigarettes or Big League chew, so I bypassed the lewd and lascivious candies and I went to the dumb candies like the Jawbreakers and the Gumdrops and the Juju Beans And I didn't want any of those so I went to the old ancient candy like the Abba and the Baby Ruth's and the Mary Janes and the Bazooka Bubble Gums and walked past those my thing the thing I like the most at that age was something that was very new was a brand new product that had just come out it was a ice cream Snickers bar ho oh, oh, ho oh, oh, ho oh. just thinking about it makes my pancreas hurt the ice cream Snickers bar was a glorious combination of chocolate and ice cream and a Snickers like feeling oh a child could live 30 lives inside the space it took to eat one of those ice cream Snickers bars mmm And as I was getting that that thing out the cooler, I saw my daddy walk to the other side of the store. And he walked to this little red, shiny cooler covered in a fine patina of rust. It was peppered in white text. And this thing predated the Herbert Hoover administration. (laughs) It was old, and it clanked, and it it made a sound like a five horsepower motor, kind of rumbled, hummed a, a middle C. And the white text on the side of the cooler read, drink Coca-Cola ice cold. I mean, I opened up the cooler lid. It was a top, top cooler. And he reached downward into it, and I heard the clankety-clank of those bottles. And he removed a sensuous hourglass-shaped green bottle filled with dark tar-black liquid and a red cap. Coca-Cola. And he held it upward into the light and he was dripping with condensation. It was almost like King Arthur removing the sword Excalibur from the stone. (laughs) Mm. Then he walked to the shelf, sold the planter's peanuts, and he got one large sleeve of planter's salt peanuts. We walked to the front of the store, the old counter made out of the green linoleum that looked homemade. We tossed our wares down onto the counter. Mr. Peaver said, howdy, John. How you doing? He said, oh, I'm okay. How's your mama? Oh, mama's good. Mama's good. How, how, how's your wife? Oh, she's all right. She's all right. This gentle cadence of men exchanging senses that actually mean nothing back and forth like two people playing ping pong. is wonderful. It's an art that has been lost and exchanged these days for two people tapping their iPhones together. Mr. Peavler looked at the items on his desk, and he did the mental math. You could see his mind working. He was a short, stubby man built like a fire hydrant with ears. <laughs> he had powerful forearms and Navy tattoos that covered him and harkened back to another era when he was with the Seabees in World War II. He said, okay, two, three, four, five," and he rounded the total up to the nearest buck. Now, he had a cash register behind the counter. But of course, that cash register hadn't worked since the great flood of 1927. My daddy laid the change on the counter. The change on the counter was exact because my father always carried exact change. He never paid one penny more than he had to. That man was tighter than a bark on a tree. (laughs) The expression about my father was that if you would have fed him copper pennies and put him over the toilet, you would have had number one copper wire come out the back end. I'll give you five more seconds to think about that one. <laughs> I looked around that store, and you know what I wish? I wish I would have taken better stock of the things that were in that store. Like the Budweiser clock that was, was above his counter, that was broken. It hadn't worked in a long, long time, and therefore it told the right time twice a day. And I wish I would have paid attention to that stool in the back. Or some of Mr. Peaver's friends would come in and sit, that stool with the snap on logo on the seat. And I wish I'd have paid attention to that calendar above the cash register, that calendar that was a favorite among blue collar men that my mother warned me never to look at under threat of eternal damnation. (laughs) My father and I walked out of that store and we sat under the curb in the blinding sunlight. And my father reached in to his little sack and he pulled out the Coca-Cola and he popped the cap on his belt buckle. And the cap flipped onto the ground and bounced around. And then he took one sip out of that Coca-Cola to lower the level right below the Coca-Cola letters. Then he used his teeth to open up the sleeve of Planter's salt peanuts. And carefully he poured the peanuts into the mouth of the Coca-Cola. If a peanut, perchance, happened to fall onto the ground, that peanut belonged to Jesus. (laughs) Once the peanuts were in the bottle, he put his thumb over the mouth. He turned it gently upside down and let those peanuts mix around. Then he turned it back over and right at the bottle and he handed it to me. He said, this is something my daddy used to do. Go ahead and try it. Well, hesitantly, I took a sip. And it was an interesting, unique flavor. It was a little bit salty, a little bit sweet, a little bit fizzy with undertones of Jif peanut butter. And I have been an advocate of peanuts and Coca-Cola ever since. I have. And so while I stood before Miss Welch's eighth grade English class, I enlisted the help of two students to distribute the peanuts and the Coca-Cola to the different students. There was one young man in back who was diabetic, so he got a Coke Zero. And the peanuts and the Coca-Colas made their way onto the desks, and then a bottle opener was distributed among the eighth graders. It was frightening how easily these children knew how to work a bottle opener. <laughs> you think. And then we went through a short introductory course. I explained that Mankind has been drinking peanuts and coca cola since the 1920s when the first shelled peanuts arrived in mercantiles and general stores all across the Bible Belt. This was a drink that was primarily consumed by working class men who got their fingers dirty and thus did not want to touch their food with greasy hands. And so they would mix both things together and consume them all at once. This was a practice that was very common among filling stations across the rural parts. People putting peanuts into their Coke. It's a lot like strawberries and champagne, only it's not champagne, and these certainly ain't strawberries. (laughs) The kids were hesitant, I'll be honest, to drink this. Once they looked at the two ingredients on their desk, they said, you expect us to drink this? I said, yeah, it's good. You're going to like it. You're going to love it. And there were words exchanged like gross or disgusting or I'd rather lick up dog vomit. (laughs) Well, the teacher took over and she used her authoritative voice. She said, class, Sean has spent a lot of money of his own money on this stuff. You will give him your attention and you will try it. You have no excuse not to. I appreciated her help. I appreciated her help very much, although I could not help but notice that when I added the peanuts to her Coke, her face turned green and she covered her mouth. <laughs> well, the kids did it, and this is, uh, this is to their credit because I know they weren't all excited to do it, but they did it and they drank it, and some of them actually liked it. Some of them said it reminded them of something much the same idea as chocolate and peanut butter or, or uh, you know something salty and sweet together. And this made me very glad, very glad, because this tradition is something that is downright rockwellian, something that our parents used to do. And see, that's where things get sad, because my generation let the practice die. Most young people, most probably a lot of people out here, have never even heard of adding peanuts to Coca-Cola. And in a way, if I'm being honest, I'll never forgive my peers for that. See, my grandfather's generation gave us the radio, the airplane, the Frigidaire, the Model T, the Model A, the electric toaster, victory over Hitler. And what did my generation give us? The Kardashians. <laughs> but you see, it's not too late to even the score and teach our children a little bit of something that our parents taught us. It's not too late. Introduce them to a little bit of American convention that'll make them feel a little bit more a part of the fabric of this wonderful nation. Which is why next week, when I visit Miss Welch's eighth-grade English class again, I promise I will introduce them to candy cigarettes. Hey, thank you very much for having me. It's been a wonderful pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. It's Sean of the South, I've been your host tonight. Sean Dietrich, and man. It's been a bona fide pleasure coming to you live via these podcast airwaves and radio waves all over this fine nation. This episode was brought to you by Case Knives, a tradition of my family dating back to my granddaddy, who once said the best cure for idle hands was to build something. So keep your hands sharp with a Case Knife, found by folklore brewing and meadery. Quite literally, the best brew. In Alabama, visit FolkloreBrewingAndMeanery.com. That excellent music you heard behind me tonight was the Poe Ramblin' Boys. Every so often, a band comes along that knocks everybody's socks off and gets people talking. And I'm, of course, talking about the Poe Ramblin' Boys. These guys aren't just good. These guys are world-class good. At a time in life when most people feel constantly distracted by technology and are barraged by the news, authenticity and straightforward honesty are paramount. And that's especially true with this music. There's something about the Poe Ramblin' Boys that cuts right through the noise of the world and speaks plainly to the soul. Formed in the Smoky Mountains, the Poe Ramblin' Boys are at once exactly what you'd expect and not at all what you'd expect ...from a tattooed East Tennessee bluegrass outfit. You gotta look these guys up. They're the real deal. Visit ramblingboys.com and download their music today. You will not regret it. To find anything more about what I do, you can visit com, and there you can find archived episodes dating back to our very first episode all the way to this episode, which you just heard, although I don't know why, you must have terrible taste in podcasts. And while you're there, I hope you take the time to drop me a line. Tell me about your birthday announcements, wedding invitations, and public socials. And i do my best to read them letters over there for my friends because I love to do that sort of stuff for my friends. And speaking of friends, friends, if you'd like to feel more American than you did 10 seconds ago, go ahead and pop open a Coca-Cola, throw in some peanuts, and take a sip. And when you're done, email me about it. Adios.